Welcome to Wine Country Women with Michelle Mandreau, the podcast for wine enthusiasts who are curious not only about what goes in the bottle, but the remarkable women who make these distinctive winemaking regions so special. Each week, Michelle introduces you to a prominent woman and takes a peek inside her life. Welcome to today's Wine Country Women podcast. I'm Michelle Mandreau, and I'm talking with my friend and someone who I admire, Heidi Barrett, who is considered to be one of the world's most renowned and respected winemakers. Heidi, thank you for joining me today. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Michelle. We're going to talk about your professional career first. You grew up with a father who was a winemaker and a mother who was an artist, right? That's right. I have to ask, when did you get turned on to wine and knew you wanted to be a winemaker? I think it really happened kind of during high school because I was already, you know, working in vineyards and labs and bottling line type of work as a summer job when I was a kid. So, you know, when it was time to pick college, senior year of high school in those days, um, I was always good at science and thought that it would be fun to try to get into UC Davis in the wine department. And I just geared everything towards becoming a winemaker someday, starting with um, being able to go to UC Davis and study wine uh, at that school. So, yeah, that was the start. Do you think your father influenced you? Oh, of course. Yeah, there's, I mean, he didn't push me, but I don't know if I would have found it if we didn't live in the Napa Valley then, if I hadn't, you know, been born in a family that was involved with winemaking, if we would have lived somewhere else in the U.S. and my dad had a different sort of job, I, I don't know that I ever would have found the world of wine. Fascinating. At 25, you became the winemaker of Bueller Vineyards. And then at at 30, you became a consulting winemaker, and you received your first two 100-point scores from Robert Parker. I have to ask, describe that moment. Well, it was um, a little bit surreal. It was kind of during the decade of the 90s where 100-point scores then were really a big deal. I think that that has changed a little bit. Mm. They are still, you know, wow, but not as much impact as they were in the 90s when all of the so-called cult wines were being born and and Robert Parker was really at the peak of his career and everybody really followed him uh, night and day. So to get a couple of them in a row was a big deal. And it it was really nice to have that recognition and that I had done the best work I could I try to do that every year. You never know what the scores are going to be. But to have that back-to-back recognition was was really very nice. And then, you know, because you became a consulting winemaker, you went on to work for a couple of different wineries. Perhaps most notable, I have to ask you about your work with Screaming Eagle and the two more 100-point scores you got from Robert Parker. Yeah, that's right. So... The whole thing of becoming what I actually prefer to call an independent winemaker because I'm their winemaker. I don't consult to anybody. There's no other winemaker there except for me Um, because of being a mom back in those days, um, getting, you know, having my family established, getting married, having a couple of young daughters. So I threw my hat in the ring of working part time as a professional winemaker for multiple brands. And as my girls grew up and went to school little by little, I could take on more work and more clients. But one of my very first ones, like you mentioned, was Della Valley. And through Della Valley, uh, I met Jean Phillips, who had 
what was to become Screaming Eagle, uh, because she had sold Gustav Delavalle his property. She was right. actually a real estate agent. So Gustav sent, really sent me down the hill. He says, go down and see if you can help Jeannie out, see what she's doing down there. And she was basically kind of a home winemaker. And I went down and kind of just started working on a casual basis as her winemaker. Uh, in 1992, and I ended up staying there for about 14 years as as Scream Eagle's original winemaker until until she sold the winery um, all that time later. So yeah, it was really an interesting just happenstance, right place at the right time, right skill set at the right time to make that happen. And yeah, I had a, a number of really you know what turned out to be high end clients that I sort of created during my tenure there, including Grace Family and you know Dalla Valley and, and Scream Eagle. I had all of those at the same time. I know, but you got those two more hundred point scores from Parker as well. That's right. I mean, I think it's incredible. I, I find it, you know, just amazing. I know that you said that it maybe it's not as, may not have the same cachet as it once did, but I still think it's it's such an accomplishment and something that yeah, thank I'm... thank you. No, I'm very, very proud of that, so thank you. And, of course, I have to also bring up the six-liter bottle of 92 Screaming Eagle that sold half a million dollars at the Napa Valley Wine Auction. What did you think of, of that moment? Well, that is still a world record price uh, <laughs> paid for any single bottle of wine. To this day, nothing has beat that, which is pretty amazing. But you have to keep in mind, while that was pretty astonishing and it was incredible to be there, I actually was in the tent at the auction when that happened, and it was the excitement over that and the energy level in the tent was palpable people just couldn't believe it when the guy that held his paddle up actually he held his hand up with all five fingers extended meaning five i'll do five hundred thousand right the tent just exploded people just went nuts nobody had ever seen anything like that before um granted it was a hundred point wine it was something made in a very small quantity so something you know not everybody had a chance to taste um, and of those two six-liter bottles that were made, uh, one of them went to that auction, and the owner kept the other bottle. So the guy that, that uh, purchased that bottle for half a million, he actually drank it a few years ago for his 60th birthday party in Paris. Oh, my so gosh. Was, yeah, it was really kind of fun to hear where that bottle ended up. But he did invite us. We weren't able to go. We were on a family vacation i think we were on a ski trip i wasn't able to join but what a good use of that he invited all his best friends and a lot of press to be there to enjoy that big fancy bottle so i I think they had a good time with it oh that's a wonderful story and how nice of him to invite you to be a part of that celebration in that moment absolutely would you say that that was a turning point in your career or and if not when would be a turning point I think a big turning point was really when I started doing the more independent winemaking role instead of working full time for one winery, mm-hmm. um, going into the more, you know, a group of, of clients as winemaker. I think that was really a turning point. I was already starting to get some attention for the client I had before that when I was only working for one place, but then when I worked for multiple places and all of my brands started getting not- notoriety and good scores and started going for top prices at auctions 
it became where people couldn't ignore the fact that it's this same winemaker again. It isn't just this vineyard. There's something about this person. And I think that kind of also helped uh, make my learning curve go up a lot faster. The fact that I would see a whole array of different things coming up each harvest versus someone who just works at only one facility. So it was kind of a combination of things where it was like, oh, you again, it's, she makes this and this and this. These are all getting, you know, top scores and winning tastings. So, yes, I did do get to work with some great vineyards, but there's something more to it. And that's where I think it was, it was a bit of a turning point where I started getting a lot of recognition for my work as a winemaker. So what makes uh, Heidi Barrett wine so special? Well, what I try to do is really maximize the potential of any given vineyard, really. So I work for still eight different wineries. I have a whole assortment of clients, yet they're all very different from each other. I think what I bring to the picture is a sense of elegance, balance, um, consistency with with that, and I try to have a lot of finesse with winemaking, a lot of precision, and yet the wines are quite exciting and and true to type. By true to type, I mean if it's Cabernet, it should it should be obviously Cabernet. If it's, you know, Zinfandel, it should say Zinfandel. I I like making red blends as well. I love making delicious Chardonnay. I get to make a whole array of different things for all my different clients and for my own brand, La Serena, as well. So I, I'd say something along those lines. I, I just try to make the best wine I can with what I have to work with. So you mentioned you have eight brands that you produce yeah, wine for? Ten, yeah, 10 brands, but eight, eight wineries. Okay. And not everyone has their own winery facility. Some of them do custom crush. Some have their own wine estates. So I have kind of an assortment of assortment of projects going on. How do you decide who to take on as a client? Well, it's, um, it, it's kind of a pretty simple formula, actually. Um, number one, I have to like the people. Right. Life is, life is pretty short to work for people that you don't click well with. So people that I like, people that have the same um, sense of wanting to do something great. Um, I, I don't want to just make average. I want to make something great. So if they're compelled to do that, um, I would also take a look at, obviously, their vineyard if it has potential to do that. Right. And if... Um, Sometimes I'm drawn to something maybe that is a new challenge for me, something I haven't made before or a region I haven't made before, maybe a part of the valley that I haven't haven't made before. Sometimes I think about that. And also, um, nothing with too many different wines. Like if, it, if they've got 30 different products, I'm probably not going to do it. If they have somewhere between, you know, three and eight maybe, yes, um, I might think about that. So something that's doable where I can do a good job for them without sacrificing my work for any of my other clients. Are you at maximum? At the moment, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm at the maximum for my winemaking clients, but I am open to doing outside consulting work okay. and where it's true consulting work. I did a really fun one last year for a, a pretty famous Sonoma County wine family. And it was just a one-day thing. I went over. I met with their winemaker, their whole winemaking team. They ran a bunch of wines by me that just to kind of troubleshoot, and, and they had questions about this and that. For me, it's really fun to help uh, a, a brand or a wine company improve their wines with just what I know how to do. And they don't get name use. Their winemaker gets full credit. But I can come in and fix a lot of things in an hour or two. 
and they're thrilled and I'm thrilled and that's a lot of fun for me and it's not an ongoing another ongoing client so yeah straight consulting work I'm open to other ongoing winemaking clients I'd have to really have a good look at it because mm-hmm. I am pretty busy well I was going to ask if a if a winemaker can make too many wines too many brands take on too many clients and kind of become oversaturated so I really like the fact that you are conscientious of how many brands you take on and that you feel like you've kind of reached your maximum capacity at at 10. That's that's important because when my clients hire me they actually get me. I don't just send out an assistant instead because they're not me even though I could train someone to be close but it's not it's not the same so I really only take on as much as what I think I can do you know extremely well and not sacrifice any quality along the way so yeah it limits maybe it's a smaller number of clients than some other you know winemaking consultants or independent winemakers but it's for me personally what I can handle and what I can what I can you know consistently be good at well I appreciate that and and respect that so let's talk about some of your brands you mentioned La Serena that's right. So let's let's tell our listeners what's special about it. So La Serena, I actually started 25 years ago, believe it or not. I know some people... <laughs> know that I That's hard to believe. <laughs> I know. So 1994, and I have, you know, built it up a little bit, although we're still quite small. I think we've never made more than 2,500 cases or something like that. And it's multiple small lots. So we focus on Cabernet as my flagship wine and probably what I'm best known for in the Napa Valley, but then I've got some really beautiful winemaker blends, one called Pirate, one called Art Bus, one a Rhone-style blend called Liberitage. I'm coming out with a new one that also focuses on my artwork called Studio Series, which will feature um, one of my paintings on the label every year, and it's a, a cab-based blend that's quite beautiful. And then I also branch off into some other fun and expected wines. Like I make a dry Muscat Canelli, which nobody around here really makes that. But if you taste it, it's just purely delicious and a lot of fun. And, and people really enjoy having some surprises in my lineup as well. I make Grenache. I make a Malbec. Um, wow. What else? I make a really fun Rosato. We get some rosé. Uh, I get some Primitivo grapes from up in the foothills of Amador, Amador County, and make some rosé from Primitivo, which is really unusual. So, yeah, I just like to kind of, you know, push it a little bit, make something a little bit different that's unexpected and that not everybody else makes, as well as making some of the classics like beautiful Napa Valley Cab, as silky and elegant as can be. So, yeah, I have a lot of fun wines in my lineup. And how can people taste those wines? Well, we or, have or do you only have an allocation list? Well, we do have our mailing list, and we don't have a wine club, so if they join our mailing list, they will get email um, offerings maybe four times a year. My daughter, Remy, is our sales and marketing director. She she does all of those and, and you know sends out those mailers. People can order directly. We also have a hospitality host named David Devon who sets up our private sit-down Um, tastings and we can host either at Joseph Sellers where I do my custom crush work but you need to go through David to set up a private appointment David at LaSerenaWine.com or we also can host at another one of my clients where I do make their wine called Fantesca and David often will use that space as well and then they can do back-to-back tastings um, with the two different brands which is a lot of fun yeah absolutely 
yeah, so we are set up to host tastings, and we'd, we'd love to have people come and taste my lineup. Okay, and then you also have a brand called Barrett & Barrett. It's That's a partnership right. with your husband, right? Yes. So can you speak of that? Yeah, so Barrett & Barrett, Bo and I started about, let's see, 2008, um, and it's just very, very small. It is high-end, delicious cab, which focuses on both of our different styles kind of overlapping. We have a separate little vineyard parcel up here in Calistoga that's three acres, and it is a uh, delicious Cabernet blended with a little bit of Cab Franc, and typically we only make about 300 cases of that a year. Oh, wow. Teeny tiny. Yep. I love it. Dare I ask about a mouche I'm not sure. Is that your partial owner of that, right? Yeah, I'll give you the rest of my client list so that there's no confusion. So I have some partnership brands where I'm the winemaking partner and there's a marketing partner. And those are four different brands that all um, have French sounding names. One is Amuse Bouche, as you mentioned. One is Au um, Sommet. One is Van Perdu. And then there is a, a rosé called Prêt that kind of falls under the under the umbrella of Amuse Bouche. That's a that's a rosé made under the Amuse Bouche um, umbrella. So those basically, I guess, three brands for four wines made that are partnership brands. Then I have my other um, winemaking clients, one that I've been their winemaker since 1991. I'm still there, which is Paradigm. A lot of people are familiar with Paradigm. Yeah, I love They're Paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. And then another longtime client, the Lamborns, Lamborn right. Family Wine Company. I've been with them since 97. Uh, Kenzo Estate, also been there since the beginning. And Fantesca on Spring Mountain, which I've been with since 2008. So kind of a long-standing client list, really. Yeah, those are all fabulous brands and wonderful wines. So Thank you. What can you say, right? That's it. That's my lineup. Learn more about the women who live in wine country when you purchase one of our lifestyle books at winecountrywomen.com. You know you love wine, and with Total Wine & More, you'll always drink interesting. Total Wine & More has a ridiculously large selection of over 8,000 wines. From California to Australia, Bordeaux to Argentina, all the best wine regions in the world can be found in their aisles. Whether you're looking for a rare vintage or something fun and quaffable, Total Wine & More is the place for those who know wine. So let's shift to your personal life. As you mentioned, you live in Calistoga. I know you have two daughters and a fabulous husband. If we took a step inside your home, what would we see? How do how would you describe your decor? You would do, you would see an explosion of color and life and art. It is very vibrant. There's just fun, happy colors and a lot of open wind. You know, big glass open you know kind of a space um it's quite colorful in in here i'm actually sitting in my living room while i'm talking to you and it's an eclectic mix of of different styles of art it basically looks like a outside of the house which we built about gosh 30 years ago i guess we've been in this house kind of the kind of classic maybe california mission style house stucco with a tile roof that kind of thing there's some big tall palm trees around the house we're at the foot of mount st helena so we've got some space around us which is nice we have vineyards nearby we're, we're definitely on the hillside and it's it's just such a gorgeous day today lush and green as i look out my window oh. so yeah 
So you said that your interior has a lot of color. Is there a predominant color? I'm just curious. Mm, not really. No. <laughs> maybe maybe blues and greens, but I mean the walls are kind of eggshell, but then there's a lot of very vibrant vibrant uh, art on the walls and yeah. Is most of it your artwork? Uh, it's an assortment. Okay. A lot of mine, but uh, I have a, we have a really good collection of art from all over the world and and uh, and other painters as well. Can you tell me how you chose to move to Calistoga? Let's see. Well, we were living in St. Helena when we were young and first married, and we had had both of our kids at our little place in St. Helena. We were kind of outgrowing that house, and we were looking for more property. We just looked all around the Napa Valley, and we came upon this parcel that was undeveloped um, that actually adjoins Chateau Montalena on one, one boundary and has open space on the other side, and just nothing was here. So we bought bare land in, what would that have been, 1988, 1989, something oh, wow. like that? Yeah. Actually, I was pregnant with our second daughter when we first looked at this property, um, so yeah, we just were expanding the family and wanted to find a little more room to, to branch out where we could maybe have horses for the kids and have a big garden and, you know, grow some grapes and do all of those good things. I know that you are a painter, which we've alluded to. You're a pilot as well. You mentioned skiing in our conversation today. Would you say those are some of your primary hobbies? And if so, why? What do yeah, you... I think my top ones are probably scuba diving, skiing, flying, painting, gardening. Those are probably probably my top handful of, of hobbies. And yeah. how did you get into painting? Painting probably started from the influence of my mom, you know, right. growing up with, with her and uh, her having my sister and I do all kinds of artwork when we were kids, just as an introduction. And then... Later on, as I told you, we built this house 30 years ago, having these big blank walls um, and not a lot of money at that time. I just that's when I kind of reestablished and started taking some painting classes and and uh, tried to, you know, start to create some of our own art for my big blank walls in my house. <laughs> it's just taken on a life of its own. So that's kind of how it started from an early age, but then sat dormant for years until, you know, sometimes need is a good, um, what would you call Motivator? it? Motivator? Yeah, exactly. When you have, you know, something that compels you to take something up or learn more about it. And so that was it. And I actually still take a painting class once a week. It's my kind of set aside time to go paint um, in St. Helena with the exact same instructor that I painted with many years ago. So oh. in the last years, she's still teaching. I still go to her open painting workshop once a week. And I really, I really enjoy that time. And I think it helps me be better at the rest of my, my job and my life. If I have that little time set aside to paint every week, then I just, I feel very satisfied by that. And I'm, I'm happy to go to work and do everything else that I need to do. You know, I think that's important. I'm not very good at setting aside time to do something enjoyable myself. Yeah, I think you have to get it on the calendar. Try, you know, if you just get it on the calendar, so it's a set appointment, like any other appointment that we all are committed to. And right. that way you can fit it in. I, I've, I've kind of figured that out over the years. If I don't schedule in my own time, it's never going to happen. There's always 
too much other work to do. So you might you might give that a try. Just slot some in on your calendar and see what happens. You might like it. I think it's a good tip for sure. Yeah. I believe that you also paint on ceramic. Am I am I recalling correctly? Yeah, I do do ceramics from time to time. I'm kind of not doing ceramics right now. I'm taking a little break from that. But um, for years, yeah, I've done all kinds of ceramic work, uh, you know, making ceramics and then glazing them. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of yard sculpture type of things, um, as well as functional pottery. Most of our our own housewares are, are as dishes, plates, cups, a lot of all of that stuff is are pieces that I've made. Oh, very is, neat. Yeah, it's very satisfying to drink your tea in the morning out of your own cup that you made. is really quite fun, I have to say. You're a winemaker, and you live in wine country. What do you like to drink at home? Well, let's see. It kind of varies depending on the season and the weather and what we're cooking, of course. But we drink a whole assortment of different wines. Um are you definitely a wine girl? I mean, I would imagine so. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do love delicious wine for sure, but I also drink other things from time to time. I, I do love, you know, icy cold beer on a cake, like especially after skiing, a beer is going to be the way to go after you've skied all day. And during harvest, we tend to drink more towards beer when we get home from work because we've been working on wine all day. But on every any given day at home, we'll either have some of our own wines open or wines that we've gotten from friends that we trade with and things like that. So you kind of never know what's going to be open on our counter. But we almost always have at least two or three bottles you know, open at any given time. Oh, very fun. Is there something that people might be surprised to learn about you that you can tell us about? Um, I think a lot of people are surprised to learn that I fly a helicopter. I think that's sort of unexpected. Um, they just, you know, they just don't think that, I don't know, I guess, A, there's not a lot of women that fly helicopters or, you know, it's just kind of an unexpected part, which I also use for my job. So, yeah, that sort of came about later in life once my kids went off to college and I kind of always wanted to do it and, and do flight training to to fly a helicopter. So, yeah, it's worked out really fun as far as I'm able to use it as a tool to go do vineyard visits and check grapes. And like that rosé I mentioned coming from the foothills, that is such a great flight to go up there and check those grapes and fly right back, which would take me all day in the car, but it's only, you know, an hour each way by, by air. So it actually really expands what I can do in a day for my business. Plus, it's a blast. I really love flying. So How long? How many years have you been flying? I started flying in 2006. Oh. So, yeah, like 14. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I'll bet it's exhilarating, or it was initially, and now it's probably just beautiful to be, look at the land from so high up. Yeah, it sure is. It's, it's uh it's exhilarating and some of it is exhilarating after you're done like the fact that you did it that you feel very you walk a little taller after you climb out (laughs) fly a helicopter do you know what i mean it's a very it's an all-encompassing thing to fly it takes you know both hands both feet just to run the controls watch outside watch the gauges feel the wind feel everything about that you're flying really by feel um it's, it takes everything you have to be able to do it, although you get a lot more comfortable with it the, the longer you do it or the more times you fly. But it's, um, 
it is. It's kind of a very satisfying, fun thing to be able to do that not a lot of people have have the chance to do. So, yeah, it's a it's an exciting hobby. That's wonderful, and I do think it's something people might be surprised by. But you've found that it's good to have. It's a good skill to have for your work. It is, <laughs> and for and for play too. That's right. There's two other questions that I want to ask you. One, you have two daughters. Any idea if they're gonna pursue a career in winemaking yeah they both they both already are oh um, well i know one you mentioned was working for you but i didn't know if either was um yeah so my older one is remy she's 33 she does our sales and marketing right she has for the last 10 years um she also has a band in san francisco so she sings in a band and that's her one of her hobbies so they play a lot of clubs around san francisco her band is called vice rain if you ever have a chance to go see them they're quite fun and then my younger daughter is chelsea she's 31 she is winemaker at matera oh and she's been doing it wine production for also about 10 years or so she used to be at, uh, one of the winemakers that joel got for about seven years and before that she worked for opus one she trained in australia and also in Austria, and um, now she's got a really great job as the head winemaker for Matera. And she's also got two little girls, so I also have two little two little granddaughters that live in town, which is so fun. Oh my goodness, I had no idea how how yeah. fun yeah. that is. Remy, what kind of music does she play? It's called um, kind of like '80s synth pop type music. Hmm. I think is what she would describe it as. Okay. They have three of them in their band. It's very dancey. It's very upbeat. Um, she's very bold on stage. She's a great performer. She has a voice. Um, you can also look up some of their music on an app called SoundCloud. Yes. But Vice Rain, V-I-C-E, and then the second word, R-E-I-N-E. So a Vice Rain is a female Viceroy. Um, I didn't know before she explained it to me, but that is the name of the meaning of the, the word of their band. So, yeah, they're quite fun. Okay, well, we'll have to check that out. Last question before we wrap things up. There was a movie called Bottle Shock. Yes. What was your takeaway of that movie? Well, Bo and I both thought it was a really fun movie. A, we, we thought it was entertaining. We thought it was a beautiful tribute kind of to the wine industry and... Uh, a fanciful story of a really historical event that happened in the world of wine for California about, you know, California wine being able to be really viewed seriously and, and kind of put California on the map to compete with the best wines in the world. So from that point of view, it was, it was great. Um, we both got to work on the movie as, you know, kind of consulting roles as far as making sure things were filmed correctly and all of that. Um, I got to help set up the Paris tasting scene, teach the judges how to, you know, judge how to hold the glass, in some cases how to even pick up a glass and swirl, basically they're actors, so some of them don't know those sort of things. Right. So that was a lot of fun. Um, I did consult with Rachel Taylor, who plays the completely made-up girlfriend, Sam. She was a made-up character. Um, a lot of people think she was me, but I didn't even know Bo then, although I was a UC Davis intern, but I, I never worked at Chateau Montalena, so they, they made her up. Um, a few other things, you know, were they took a few liberties here and there, but overall, yes, Montalena won the tasting. How it happened, you know, they made it a little bit more fun, probably, to make a two-hour movie out of it than right. just went Harrison won. But, um, yeah, we enjoyed it. We enjoyed the whole experience of, of having a film made about 
some part of your family, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, for sure. And I fibbed. I have one other thing to ask you. Robert Parker calls you the first lady of wine. What do you think about that title? Um, I guess it could be worse, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome, personally. But, you know, I, I just was curious to know, you know. How you you felt about it. it, It's really a huge compliment. So all joking aside, I'm, I'm very flattered by that. I I do take it as a, as a very nice compliment. So yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, we will wrap things up with what I like to call five quick questions. They're very lighthearted. So, so just go with me on this. All right. (laughs) Okay. What kind of car do you drive? I drive a little Fiat 500. Okay. What was your last vacation? Hawaii. Who is your favorite singer? Probably Lady Gaga. I do really love her. What was the last piece of candy you ate? Uh, Toblerone bar. And last question. Who is your favorite actor or actress? Um, I'd say Kate Blanchett. There you go. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Michelle. Have a great day. Visit winecountrywomen.com to join our exclusive list so you can be the first to learn about upcoming offers and events. Grab a glass and join us next week for a new edition of Wine Country Women.